This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Wednesday, January 25th. Everyone wants to know when their town could be next. Well, the wait times are shrinking. We start here. Another day, another California town sent reeling over a mass shooting. What the hell is wrong with us? We'll take you to the Bay Area where a community of farm workers are mourning. The reason Google makes money is because of all those ads on your screen. Advertising funds Google. And without advertising, there's no Google. Now the DOJ says it wants to break up Google and it's feeling lucky. And regardless of what car you're driving, every kid on your block could be riding an electric vehicle soon. We really don't hear anything right now. We don't. Unlike everything else about the morning commute, electric school buses are running ahead of schedule. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. So far this year, there have been more mass shootings than days in 2023. That's according to the Gun Violence Archive, which reminds us mass shootings don't necessarily have to be deadly. Plenty involve four or more victims who are injured. But all these attacks, regardless, change lives forever. Of the four deadliest shootings so far this January, though, all but one of them have now taken place in California. A home invasion last week, the Lunar New Year killings near Los Angeles this weekend, and now a series of killings near the Bay Area. In picturesque Half Moon Bay just outside of San Francisco, officials identifying a possible motive in the massacre that left seven dead and one injured Monday evening. Let's start the day with ABC's Matt Rivers, who traveled from Monterey Park in Southern California, now up to Half Moon Bay. Matt, where are you and what do we know about this shooting? You know, it says a lot about what's going on in the state of California right now that uh, on one one night at 6 p.m., I'm leading our evening newscast in Monterey Park talking about a mass shooting. And I was on my way back to the hotel where I got a call from my boss that, hey, you got to get on a plane to San Francisco because there's been another mass shooting up in Half Moon Bay. So Half Moon Bay, for people who aren't familiar, it's a little bit south of San Francisco. It's on the coast. This is a farming community, a pretty small town uh, known actually for whale watching tours if you come out here. But this is a small knit community uh, that has really gone through some serious tragedy. So what we know happened here is uh, a suspect named Chun-Li Zhao. And what authorities say he allegedly did was go to two different farms and open fire in both places. In total, authorities say he killed seven people between both locations. Victims were adults and a mixture of Hispanic and Asian descent. And what they are now saying uh, is a a situation of workplace violence. That is how they are describing this. Only known connection between the victims and the suspect is that they may have been co-workers. One of the more wild aspects of this case, however, is how authorities managed to apprehend the suspect. 1741. It was Monday afternoon at a sheriff's department substation where an officer recognized the description that had been put out of the vehicle the suspect was driving. The suspect was actually parked in the parking lot. So the police call over to him, say, get out of the car. They took him into custody without incident. 
there's video of this incident where you can see him being patted down, frisked for weapons. He seemed calm and quiet and he was just quiet. He, you know, he didn't react much when he was taken down. And he is now in custody, uh, set to be arraigned later on today. Well, and immediately, Matt, you had people drawing parallels, right? Uh, again, an Asian male suspect. Again, somebody who allegedly commits a mass shooting at one location and then starts driving to another. But these are two very distinct communities that were affected when you compare the Northern California and Southern California sites. What has been the reaction from people there in Half Moon Bay? Well, this is a, a small community. I'm on Main Street right now in Half Moon Bay, and a lot of businesses here are closed. They actually closed during the day on Monday when this was going on, and the suspect was still on the loose. But even after he was apprehended, authorities came out and said that there is no longer an active threat. This community is still obviously extremely impacted. We're just worried right now because he's not answering his calls or anything like that, and they're not letting anyone go in or out. They're not letting. They're also not telling us like if, uh, who the deceased are and everything because they know for sure there's like three people in there that are um, pronounced dead. And I think it's important to note that this is not the only trauma that this community and others along the coast here in California have dealt with recently. There were massive storms that just pummeled this region going from a little bit before December, uh, before Christmas in December, all the way through just about a week or two ago now. Huge impact in this area. The coast has experienced its share of challenges over the last few weeks, specifically as it relates to all the uh, incredible weather we've had. There's been flooding. There's been people out of work. Um, and this just adds to that stress. I think it's fair to say the people in this community really need some good news to happen to them because this has been a very tough stretch. Matt, I guess I'm wondering what all this ends up meaning for the gun debate, because California has pretty strict gun laws compared to a lot of other states. And yet we're seeing so many of these mass shootings in just the span of a few days. We haven't even talked about a less deadly shooting in Oakland over the weekend where seven people were injured. One was killed. But is this something where stricter local laws would even make an impact or does it just speak to a more national problem? Well, this has been a question that's been posed to authorities in, in both places where I've been covering these stories. And what you're hearing from officials, at least on the record so far, is that they're saying it's a little bit too early to tell what kind of an impact uh, different sorts of gun laws would have had in either crime. However, here in Half Moon Bay, what we've been told from authorities is that this suspect purchased his gun legally versus there are signs that in the shooting in Monterey Park, that suspect there was illegally modifying his weapons. He might have obtained ammunition in an illegal way. He was producing uh, or manufacturing in, in his house homemade firearm suppressors. So could local laws in those situations have made a big difference? I think it's too early and perhaps we'll never be able to say definitively, but what I think you can say is that even in a liberal state like California, a relatively liberal state like California, these kinds of incidents are going to spark more of a gun debate. One common denominator are these damn guns. I got no ideological opposition to someone owning a gun responsibly. But what the hell? is wrong with us. You've got a, a Democratic governor here, Gavin Newsom, who talked about this. Gun safety saves lives, but notably, not in every case. No one's naive. So don't point to that as proof of its failure. Quite the contrary. Each time this happens, it affects a different community in a different way. It affects people in a local way that they probably had not experienced before. And so it is going to impact the gun debate, even in a relatively liberal state like California moving forward. All right, Matt Rivers there in Northern California as authorities from across the country are paying attention to you know, the series of mass shootings now that you've been covering. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you, guys.
Next up on Start Here, more and more lawmakers can agree on one thing. They're over big tech. We're back in a bit. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Married moms in the suburbs, they've been called soccer moms, they've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Yesterday, the buzziest thing happening in Washington was a hearing at Congress, because this hearing was about Taylor Swift. You can't have too much consolidation, something that unfortunately for this country, as a uh, ode to Taylor Swift, I will say, we know all too well. This was basically a chance for lawmakers to hold Ticketmaster's feet to the fire over the Taylor Swift concert debacle, saying this was an example of a monopoly no one likes, making it impossible to get good service. It was also a chance for a lot of suits to dunk on Ticketmaster, using the puns presumably written by their younger staffers. May I suggest respectfully that Ticketmaster ought to look in the mirror and say, I'm the problem. It's me. And yet for all the hype, that was not the biggest story in Washington yesterday. Heck, it wasn't even the biggest antitrust story in Washington yesterday, because right up Pennsylvania Avenue, the Department of Justice was making its move against one of the biggest tech companies on Earth. Google has engaged in exclusionary conduct to severely weaken, if not destroy, competition in the ad tech industry. In a historic announcement, the DOJ said it wants to force Google, or Alphabet, to divest from much of its advertising technology. And while spinning off an ad service does not sound very dramatic, this could affect everything about the internet for years to come. Let's go to Alex Kantrowitz. He's a tech journalist who hosts the Big Technology Podcast. Alex, first off, can you just explain what the DOJ is actually alleging here? It's alleging that basically every time you see an ad on the internet, it's going through Google. And the reason why it's going through Google is because Google has unfairly elbowed out the competition and made sure that Google is the one that serves that ad to you. And effectively what the Department of Justice says is that has led to a very uncompetitive internet and it's going to step in and try to make the internet economy competitive again. And so I'm not like, I'm not a tech guy. I'm not a business guy. I'm not a tech business guy. So if you start using words like vertical integration, I will not understand you, Alex. But so with that in mind, can you just explain how Google ads work and how it became seen as such a threat? Well, Brad, you see, it's all about horizontal integration. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Uh, Google advertising started as a very simple premise, 
when you search for something on Google, it would allow advertisers to pay for a sponsored search result next to organic search results. So if you searched for, I want to buy a car in my neighborhood, you could have Hyundai place an ad and be like, hey, look, you might be looking for a car. Why don't you buy a Hyundai? Once Google saw that system was working well, it realized, hey, we're sending all this traffic to other websites out on the internet and they have ads too. Why don't we sell ads on those websites to the same advertisers? And so it started creating some of the infrastructure for buyers and sellers of advertising online to be able to complete that transaction and make sure that the ad actually appears on the website. In April 2007, Google announces that it spent what many look back at as the best $3.1 billion transaction in internet history. Advertising is really about relevance. It's really about efficiency. It's really about measurability. It bought this company called DoubleClick. And DoubleClick is kind of a funny name, one of those early internet companies. And what it did was it allowed publishers to put ads on their websites and it allowed advertisers to track how their ads were performing. What was interesting about DoubleClick is that since 2004, uh, they made a lot of changes to the way they operate. It had this thing in between them that said, hey, if you're a publisher that has some ad space and you're an advertiser, you have some ad dollars, why don't we facilitate that transaction? And that is basically the bare bones of what became the Google dominant force that rules online advertising today not just on Google search, but really across the internet, which is sort of the hidden part of their business that the Department of Justice is now going after. Yeah, explain that, because I get the search thing. I get that when I type in something on Google search engine, I'm probably going to see things that Google wants me to see near the top of that search. Which, like That makes a certain amount of sense, even if like you don't love it. That's what's happening. Explain all the other websites I see throughout the day. And that's exactly what the evolution of this double-click acquisition led to. So effectively, if you're a publisher online, you're going to sign up for the DoubleClick ad server. And when someone wants to buy an ad from you, you put the ad in the ad server and that's how it shows up. And because publishers have so many ads showing up on their site, it's not like you can just code that into your website. You need something with a little bit of technology to be like, okay, here we have this visitor. We're going to show them this ad. We have this visitor. We'll show them that ad. How many ads did we show today? How many ads do we have left? But couldn't you use someone who's not Google for that, Alex? Like, why is it? What's the antitrust part here where, like, it has to be Google? So the Department of Justice is alleging that Google used anti-competitive practices to ensure that publishers used its ad server, that advertisers used its ad server, and that the ad exchange in the middle, similar to the stock exchange in the middle, was going to be privileged. We alleged that Google has used anti-competitive, exclusionary, and unlawful conduct to eliminate or severely diminish any threat to its dominance over digital advertising technologies. Basically, they're saying that they used a bunch of dirty tricks, including to ensure that publishers would continue working with them, uh, giving them some more money to do that, and that advertisers were paying one price, but they really should have been paying another price, and that locks them into the system because they think they're getting the best deal when they're really not. And this is a key complaint about advertising technology today, is that you put this technology on your site because it takes care of something that you need to have taken care of, but ultimately it's the middlemen that end up taking the majority or sometimes close to the majority of the money. Advertising funds Google. And without advertising, there's no Google. Well, and so for the Biden administration, this is a big moment because the Biden administration has said, hey, we're going to hold big tech accountable for what we see as sort of excesses in an unregulated space. This would be their chance to do that if this works. But what would this mean for Google? What would this mean for 
the average computer user. If the Department of Justice wins and is actually able to break this part of Google off from the company, it's going to be quite an unwinding for Google. My perspective there is I don't think your advertising experience on the internet will get all that worse. This is a thing that lots of tech companies like to hold up in public saying, well, people like targeted ads, they like relevant advertising experiences, and if you break it up, it's going to make the internet worse. And frankly, having spent a lot of time on websites, I'll tell you this, ads, no, no matter how targeted they may be, are pretty terrible. It's the old thing of like, I buy a refrigerator and then I get a bunch of ads for a refrigerator. I'm like, no bro, like you missed, you missed the boat guys. Exactly. And so the argument that, well, this should be kept together so you can continue to be retargeted by that refrigerator, it just doesn't hold water to me. All right, well, for its part, a Google spokesperson said that this lawsuit from the DOJ attempts to, quote, pick winners and losers in this highly competitive advertising technology sector. He also said that this all drew on a case that has already been dismissed in Texas, saying again, quote, DOJ is doubling down on a flawed argument that would slow innovation, raise advertising fees, and make it harder for thousands of small businesses and publishers to grow. Uh, Alex Kantrowitz, host of the Big Technology Podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. There's a lot of coverage right now of electric vehicles, how this choice is looming so large for individual car owners. Like if you're about to buy, is this the moment you're about to go electric? But there are also millions of Americans who won't have a choice. The choice will be made for them every time a city decides to put cops in hybrids or every time a postal worker gets a new electric mail truck. Remember, the postmaster general was convinced last year to put in an order for way more electric trucks than he did under President Trump. We might not talk about these decisions as much as individual cars, but these have a huge effect on the overall numbers in this country. And right now, there's a big chunk of American automobiles transitioning to electric. The main clients for these ones are too young to have licenses themselves. ABC's Karen Travers is with us. And Karen, you've been looking at school buses. I didn't even realize electric school buses have become such a thing. Yeah, this is a really fun new thing. So there are 25 million American kids that take the school bus every day. It's about 500,000 school buses all around the country. And like, when you think about a school bus, think about the little yellow buses, but you think of the black smoke. You think of the diesel fumes that are pouring out of them. They're really loud. They smell bad. They don't seem like the picture of health. But these electric school buses that are now starting to pop up across the country, they're better for the environment. They're better for kids' health. They're better for local communities. And you're starting to see a lot of school districts around the country electrifying their fleets. There seems to be a real awakening that electric is what the future is going to be for the student transportation industry. Maryland made it a law that by the year 2025, all of their newly purchased school buses have to be electric. New York State is doing the same thing by 2027. So this is significant. And they're getting a boost from the federal government. These fumes do not just threaten the health of our children. They also threaten the future of our planet. Remember that infrastructure law that the president likes to talk about a lot? You know, it's a pretty big deal. Right. Uh, that infrastructure law has $5 billion in it for clean school buses. And that is giving a jump start to districts all across the country to make this switch. And the EPA has already given out nearly a billion dollars to hundreds of school districts across the country. Oh, it absolutely is a game changer. And Brad, we talked to the EPA administrator, Michael Regan, who 
told us that without that funding, it would have taken decades to bring school districts really into the 21st century. Low-carbon school buses carrying our most precious cargo to and from school each and every day. I mean, this was going to take a long time for schools to make a shift from diesel to electric. Yeah, I was looking at research from the World Resources Institute. They currently say there are 12,000 electric school buses on the road. So that means the number would just get exponentially larger, Karen. Are these like the same buses? Do they look like the same yellow school buses, just different engine? Yeah, they look the same. Uh, We went out to a bus depot in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is leading the way in the nation uh, with electric buses. Uh, They have ordered the largest single biggest electric fleet of school buses in the country. In about two years, they're going to have 320. 26 of them on the road. Montgomery County has a climate action plan that is uh, very progressive and the school system should be a part of that. And they say in 10 years, this school district, which is really massive right outside D.C., mm. their whole fleet will be fully electric in a decade. You just got to go in a little switch and it's out. So we went out to a bus depot there to get a look at what they look like, what they feel like, and they look the same. They're they're yellow. They're boxy, but they feel different. They sound different. Is that can you hear it? Is all right now? They hear it? No. <laughs> they're really a nice ride. It felt more like a tram than you know, like something you'd ride, you know, maybe on the boardwalk. Like a, like a gentle, a gentle yeah. hum as opposed to the rumble. Yeah. So Sheila, we we really don't hear anything right now. You don't. They weren't as herky jerky as a bus, uh, and we had a chance to talk to a driver, Sheila Martinez, who has been driving school buses for about eight years, and she made the switch recently from a diesel-powered bus to one that now runs on electricity, and she loves it. Electric is is easier. It's way easier to drive electric than diesel. She says it's quiet, it's smooth, and it really has made a difference, she says, driving kids around. How big of a difference does it make to the community, to the environment, and to the kids themselves? Yeah, it's significant for the health factor. Reducing those nitrous oxides and those diesel emissions are critical for the health of our students uh, and, and the health of our schools. There have been studies that have shown that, you know, kids whose lungs are still developing are really vulnerable to the fumes from diesel exhaust. There are recent studies that show that when kids are exposed to less diesel emissions, their lungs function better. They're actually absent from school less, and they even have slightly higher test scores. So this is a really significant shift for these school districts, and they think it's going to improve kids' lives. It's going to improve things for the communities as well. Does it tell us something, Karen, about which vehicles should be going electric first? Because, like, my first thought about getting mm-hmm. an EV for myself would be, like, where would I charge it at night? Well, a school bus driver knows exactly where they will charge it at night. School buses are very good to go electric because the drivers have a set route in the morning, they have a set route in the afternoon, and for the most part, they go relatively short distances, or at least it's a distance that you know in advance, and it's the same thing. How long does it take to charge, then, to go 45 minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes. To do minutes. a full charge. To do a full charge, yes. And then you think about it, the buses just sit parked in the lot all day in between, and they're charging up. Similar to mail trucks. I was mentioning exactly. mail trucks. And, you know, another expert told us uh, that, you know, for every school bus that takes kids to school, that's taking 35 cars off of the road. 
I think my favorite thing that we learned during the reporting on this story was Sheila Martinez, our bus driver. She told us that she really feels that the kids who ride on her electric bus are better behaved. So the heater and the kids are the loudest thing on your bus right now. But not, believe it or not, they already, they know not to scream because I can hear them. The bus is so quiet. We rode on it. We felt it. It's very quiet. All you can really hear is the heater. And that they're better behaved because she can hear everything. Oh, it's like a library mentality all of a sudden. Don't upset the librarian. Oh, yes. They have to watch what they're saying because the drivers now are listening and know what's going on in the back of the bus. They'll miss the chaos. All right, Karen Travers on the bus route going round and round (laughs) on this. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. All right, one more quick break. When we come back, more classified documents, but these ones didn't belong to the guy you're thinking of. One last thing is next. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. And one last thing. For the last couple weeks, a lot of Americans have probably been asking, how hard is it to keep your home free from classified documents? Well, the answer apparently is very hard. Lawyers for former Vice President Mike Pence revealing they discovered what they call a small number of documents with classified markings at Pence's Indiana home. Yesterday, we learned that Joe Biden isn't the only recent vice president to have classified documents residing at his house. Mike Pence now says his team discovered a dozen documents with classified markings at his home in Indiana. Apparently, they had been boxed up with other stuff when Pence was moving between Virginia and his home state. No one realized what had happened. Similar to Biden, and unlike former President Trump, Pence's team says they handed them over as quickly as humanly possible. He didn't even bother to look at what was in them. And what's important to understand here is these documents appeared to only be discovered because Pence had his own home combed in the wake of the Biden search, which makes you gotta think that, A, pretty much anyone who's ever laid hands on classified documents is right now rifling through their homes, and B, they might be finding stuff. Like, how likely is it that these two former vice presidents are the only ones? I've never had access to classified documents, but it did make me wonder, what's the most valuable piece of paper I could find in my home that I've completely forgotten about, that should have been burned long ago? I started in my little file folder. Boring, boring, taxes, taxes. Then looked through my bookshelf. Oh, is this that recipe? Oh, I should use this. But nothing I would think needs to be protected under lock and key. Wait, what is this? (laughs) Until there, Uh nestled among my old ticket stubs, was a childhood photo of me looking very, very cranky. This is a photo of me in a wetsuit. So, context, my mom was working in marketing back in the day for the sportswear company. She apparently told everyone that she worked with that her kids would be really good child models for their new line of swimwear. Only problem is that me and my little sister in our 90s turquoise and purple wetsuits look absolutely mortified. That is, that should not be in the house. That should not be in an unsecured location. Now, documents containing our country's most sensitive secrets should be more protected than my embarrassing childhood moments. But if I can forget to secure that, you can bet there are more discoveries still out there to be made. We talked about this with John Cohen last week, that this says just as much about our classification system as the people holding onto these documents. Like, we just let folks wander away with these? 
Yes, if you're wondering, for one day and one day only, we will have this childhood photo of me up on our Instagram page at Start Here ABC. You better check this out now before I beg our team to take it down. It does go to show you, though, keep track of your papers. So let us know what's around your house that should have been put in a burn bag long ago. You can check us out on Twitter, on Insta, at Start Here ABC. I'm Brad Milky. See you tomorrow. Whew, glad I did this. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.